Leviticus chapter 24 is our text today. It's a bit of a change of tone um, from last week, but uh, also a very important sermon I think we need to hear on justice this morning. We're going to read the rest of chapter 24, so that's going to start in verse 10 and end to verse 23. So Leviticus 24, starting in verse 10 uh, down to verse 23. Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the children of Israel, and this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. And so they brought him to Moses. His mother's name was Shelemith, the daughter of Debris of the, son, of the tribe of Dan. Then they put him in custody that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take outside the camp him who is cursed. Then let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. And let all the congregation stone him. Then you shall speak to the children of Israel saying... Whoever curses his God shall bear a sin, and whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall surely stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. As he has cursed disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses, First Baptist Church of Great Gables, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word this morning. Gracious Father, we, we thank You for Your holy and inspired word. We receive it as such and we submit to its authority. We know that each one of us are under its authority. And so Father, I pray for help and grace this morning to clearly articulate the message we find here specifically about justice. Would you help us to understand from a biblical perspective what justice is? Would you help us to consider its implications for our own life? I pray by your spirit that this word might be impressed upon our hearts, that it might be transformative, that we, by the power of your spirit and much grace in Christ, would become more and more like your son, Jesus. Father, I do pray that if there's anything that's said this morning that is not in keeping with your word, if I have misunderstood any part I pray you would help us to see it as such, not to accept it as truth, but instead to set it aside. Lord, we are a weak and feeble people, completely dependent upon you. Every moment, we are dependent for the grace that you give us in Christ. Would you be honored and glorified now in the name of your Holy Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm going to start with a a quote by a man whose name is Cornell West. Uh, Maybe you know him. Um, I'm not sure if he still is. He was a professor at Princeton. He's a a well-known intellectual, so they say. He once said this. He said, Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. 
Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. It's an intriguing statement, isn't it? I'm inclined to agree with it to a point. But I think the question when I came across that this week in study was, is it a true statement? Is justice what love looks like in public? I believe our passage today is going to offer us a biblical response. It actually helps us to answer that very question. And so I'm going to reserve answering it until the end. The big idea we find in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 through 23 this morning, is that justice is impartial, measured, and merciless. Justice is impartial, measured, and merciless. As you write that down, I'm going to actually give you a spoiler, and that's kind of the rest of your fill-in-the-blank, at least uh, some of the major points after we overview the text. Justice is impartial, justice is measured, and justice is merciless. And so, as we consider these aspects of justice, I believe we're going to arrive at the answer to our question, is justice what love looks like in public? Now, before we begin, I want to offer a working definition of justice so that we're all on the same page. Justice can certainly be a difficult term to define. There are many definitions offered in our culture and in various cultures, but I, I think justice in its simplest terms simply means to put things right. That's what we're going to going to define justice as this morning. Justice means to put things right. Justice is a judgment, it's an action that accords with and brings about righteousness. In fact, in the Old Testament, we almost see justice and righteousness often used as a word pair. Justice and righteousness go together. Justice is that which is required to bring about righteousness when righteousness has been damaged and lost. Justice refers to what needs to be done in a given situation if people and circumstances are to be restored to conformity with righteousness. And so in our passage today, we will see that justice is impartial, justice is measured, and justice is merciless. But again, before we look at those specific aspects of justice, I want us to start with this narrative. Uh, This is what we have here. This is a narrative. It's actually only our second narrative in all of the book of Leviticus. Remember, Leviticus is set in history. Right? God has descended upon his tabernacle. He has ascended his holy throne. He's called his holy servant Moses to speak through him to his holy people, Israel. It's all happening right here at the foot of Mount Sinai. So we receive Leviticus as historical narrative in its context. But, but twice in Leviticus, we have a break in, in this long law that's given by Moses to the people of Israel by Yahweh. And in those breaks, we find these stories. There's only been two so far. The first one, if you remember, was back in chapter 10, where Nadab and Abihu approached the altar with strange fire, an offering that was not prescribed by the Lord, and we have that account of their judgment. Now, for for this only the second time in 24 chapters, in Leviticus, we have a break in the law given, and we have another narrative. What we find is another judgment given by the Lord. This is actually a case law given as an example that can be used in other circumstances to know just how to apply God's law. 
And so I want us to look at the narrative very quickly. I want us to notice four things specifically. We're looking here at the case of the blasphemer. This is what this case law is. It's the case of the blasphemer. I think the first thing we need to understand is that this man is not an Israelite. So this man is not an Israelite, which probably is interesting to you as you read the text. You are wondering where we get that. Well, well, look at what it says in verse 10. In verse 10, we read, Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian. Well, according to ancient Near East, descent is according to the father, not the mother. That's important information for us. For instance, when Ruth the Moabite has a child with Boaz, the Israelite, the child is a full-blooded Israelite because the father is an Israelite. Likewise, in this situation, Shelemeth, an Israelite, has a child with an Egyptian father. Therefore, the child is by all accounts and purposes an Egyptian, not an Israelite. This understanding is substantiated when we read at the end of verse 10, and this Israelite woman's son... And a man from Israel fought each other in the camp. Do you notice that? They're, they're contrasting the two. The Israelite woman's son is not a man from Israel. So the first thing we see is this man's not an Israelite. The second thing we need to see here is this man has clearly broken God's law. So he's not an Israelite and he's clearly broken God's law. We see that in verse 11 very clearly. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. We, we, already, we already know what the law states, right? In, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then in Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, it says, You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. In addition to that, in Exodus 21, verse 17, in Leviticus 20, verse 9, the consequence for cursing one's parents is clearly stated as death. So it's safe for us to assume that the Israelites understood that cursing God would actually also bring about the death sentence. So we see this man's not an Israelite. He's clearly broken God's law. But we also see something else. Thirdly, we see that Israel is unsure of what to do with this man. Israel is unsure what exactly they are to do, what their response is to be. They're not exactly sure how to apply the law of God and its consequences. So they, they put him in custody until the will of the Lord is clear to them, according to verse 12. The, the question seems to be this. The question seems to be, how does the law of God apply to a non-Israelite? One who is an alien resident. Not an Israelite. The law is clear. The penalty is clear. But the application in this specific case is not clear. So again, the question is, is this resident alien responsible to obey the law of the Lord? The answer is given in verse 14, where it says, Take outside the camp him who is cursed, and let all who heard him lay their hands on him, and let all the congregation Stone him. And then in verse 23, at the very end, we see Israel's response. It says, Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed, and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. 
The last thing we see very clearly from that text is the man is sentenced to death. So the man's not an Israelite. He's clearly broken God's law. Israel's not quite sure what to do with him. And he's sentenced to death. The Egyptian man, born of an Israelite woman, is no less guilty for transgressing God's law than an Israelite would be. All right, that's the narrative. That's the story we see in these 14 verses. Now the question becomes, are we ready to unpack what this entire passage teaches us about justice? First, we see that justice is impartial. Justice is impartial. Justice does not take into account nationality, ethnicity, skin color, education, socioeconomic status, or any other extraneous facts. Justice, from God's perspective, it's actually quite simple. See, God's law is an expression of his own character that is unchanging. It is his unchanging standard or rightness. Any transgression of God's law merits a penalty. Justice is the satisfaction of that penalty by the one who transgressed God's law. By the way, notice what's missing from this equation here. There's no consideration of the person's background, upbringing, or life experience. No consideration of color, education, economic status. Justice is really not concerned with these things in the eyes of the Lord. In fact, if you flip over just to Leviticus chapter 19... Verse 15, this principle has already been established for Israel. In, in chapter 19, verse 15, it tells us this. Remember, this is the holiness code, right? It says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honor the person of the mighty in righteousness. You shall judge your neighbor. See, justice requires judging and acting according to righteousness. Justice does not submit to sentiment. Justice does not rule in favor of the poor because they need help or because they've had a hard life or because they deserve a break. Nor does justice kneel to the wealthy and, and those in power. Justice does not allow for showing partiality to the wealthy because they offer favors or are able to give bribes. See, justice rules according to the will of God. And, and God... Does not show partiality. That's part of who he is. God does not show partiality. That's actually why Leviticus chapter 19, verse 15 is there. Because justice, as impartial, is an expression of the impartial God who judges all things. Uh, it reminds me of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah. He actually understood this. If, if you know Jehoshaphat, he was one of the few kings who was a God-fearing king who attempted to bring about reform in the nation of Judah. Second Chronicles chapter 19 records those events and these efforts. And one of the things he did is, is the king went from fortified city to fortified city in order to establish judges in those place, places to judge rightly for the people of God and settle disputes. Listen to the advice that Jehoshaphat gives those judges. In 2 Chronicles 19, verse 6, it says, And he, Jehoshaphat, said to the judges, Take heed to what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you in the judgment. Now, therefore, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. See, that, that truth, it's actually universalized in the Psalms. 
In in Psalm 67, verse 4, it says the same thing. It, It tells us, for you, being God, shall judge the people righteously. That's impartiality. That's what justice is. It's impartial. Likewise, in Psalm 96, verse 10, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the peoples righteously. Psalm 98, verses 8 and 9. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. For He is coming to judge the earth. With righteousness He shall judge the world and the peoples with equity. See, see, this is why the son of an Israelite woman is sentenced to death. It's because the Lord is impartial. The Lord is God over all. The Lord is not your basic run-of-the-mill deity. No. He is the Lord Almighty who created the heavens and the earth. His law is in all the earth. He is God of the Egyptian just like He is God of the Israelite. And so the blaspheme, curse the name of the Lord, was not simply to curse the Israelite God. No, when this man did this, he was cursing his God, his maker, and his king. In fact, that's exactly what we read in verse 15. We read something very poignant. Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. And then verse 16, And whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who is born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. Again, in verse 22 of our text in Leviticus 24, You shall have the same law. For the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Justice is impartial, period. But justice is not just impartial. Justice is also measured or measurable. Justice is measured. That's exactly what we see in verses 17 through 21 of our text. I'm going to read that again for you if you don't mind. Uh, Verse 17 tells us this. It says, whoever... Kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good. Animal for animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor as he has done, so shall it be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, as he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it. But whoever kills a man shall be put to death. This section... Uh, actually instructs the Israelites that justice must be measured. It's known as the principle of lex telianus, right? Uh, It it means the the law of retribution is what that means, okay? Uh, This is what that principle is. It's the law of retribution. Now, this doesn't mean it was to be literally applied in every situation, right? In in other words, it doesn't mean if, if Travis came and knocked my tooth out, in order for justice to be delivered, I would have to knock his tooth out. As much as you might want to see that, I'm not worried. Uh, I hope you don't. Um, certainly. Who knows? Uh, he might be envisioning it right now. Um, so, no, I'm kidding. It doesn't imply or necessitate that. What it does necessitate is that the punishment fit the crime. See, it, it's actually ironic that this phrase is often, when we use it, it's often misused to refer to vengeance. Often when we hear this, that's what we think. Oh, he knocked out my tooth. I'm going to knock out his with a vengeful attitude. This principle was actually meant 
to safeguard against retaliation and vengeance. It's meant to safeguard against what I call the Lamech principle. Uh, go ahead and write that down, the, the Lamech principle. So we've got the principle of Lex Talionis, the law of retribution, but also the Lamech principle. What do I mean by Lamech principle? Well, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 23, this is where you find what I'm referring to as the Lamech principle. Listen to this. Verse 23 tells us, Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. That's not justice, right? You see that. That's, that's the opposite of justice. Remember, justice is what needs to be done in a given situation if people and circumstances are going to be restored to conformity with righteousness. That's vengeance, is what Lamech did, not justice. I've killed a man for wounding me. Just imagine, if you will, a world where your insult leads me to punch you in the face. And then me punching you in the face leads your brother to come and break my arms. And your brother breaking my arms leads my family to kill him. And the death of your family member leads to the death of three of my family members. And on and on it goes without end. Now, unfortunately, we don't even have to imagine such a world. We're surrounded by that exact type of justice. But the Lord teaches His people that justice is not vengeance. Justice is measured. It is concerned with righteousness, not revenge. And so the death of the Egyptian man is most certainly an example of this kind of measured justice. And and look, I get it. That might be hard for us to understand. We think, so what? He got really upset. He was in a fight. He cursed the name of the Lord. Is that really worth a death sentence? Yeah. First, we have to understand this, this isn't simply using the name of the Lord as a swear word, as bad as that would be. We have to understand that according to the book of Exodus chapter 33 verse 19, the name of the Lord represents the Lord. To blaspheme the name is to blaspheme the Lord. I mean, we do a similar thing with our names, don't we? When we talk about that, you know what? I, you know what they did? They dragged my name through the mud. We, we aren't talking simply about our name. We're talking about someone who has damaged our reputation, who has slandered our character. See, the man was not simply swearing against the Lord. He was speaking great evil of the Lord and showing him utter contempt for him as king. You have to understand that what he did is nothing more than high treason. And so what is a measured act of justice in response to this crime? Well, he rejected the Lord of life. So the Lord of life rejected him, taking back from him the life the Lord had given him. See, this was a measured response. That's what justice is. Justice is impartial. Justice is measured. But justice is also merciless. Justice is also merciless. And this might be hard for us to wrap our our, our minds around, but we need to. Look at how our passage ends, the very last verse of our chapter again. Verse 23, Then Moses spoke to the children of Israel. They took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Justice was served. Impartial, measured, merciless justice. 
we would do well to remember that this, this actually records for us a real event. This is not simply a story. This is history. A real person really cursed the Lord. A man with an Israelite mother, an Egyptian father, was really placed in custody until the will of the Lord could be determined. A real verdict was issued, guilty. A real sentencing was issued, death by stoning. Can you imagine the CNN coverage of this event? The outcry against the religious liberties of this man? The horror of the video footage of the execution, the hands placed on the man's head to identify the guilty party and to return the guilt to the man. The men representing all of Israel gathering around with their lethal stones, preparing to end this man's life and then finally doing so by throwing the stones until they bludgeoned him to death. The blood, the gore, the final breaths, the death. I doubt that anyone would be celebrating this event as the justice that is the public demonstration of love. Would Cornell West stand up after watching justice being delivered to an Israelite woman's son and say, never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. See, justice is impartial, measured, and merciless. When justice comes... It it comes, and all who have transgressed the law of God stand under the judgment of justice. That's the picture that's painted. Justice is merciless. Imagine justice applied to the world according to God's standard of God's law as it was expounded on the Sermon of the Mount by Jesus Christ himself. You ready for this? Think about if, if we applied That law, that way, the way Jesus applies the law in the Sermon of the Mount. An impartial application of justice would convict anyone of adultery who ever lusted after another woman or man. A measured penalty for adultery is eternal death. How many would be left in this room? If we brought justice to bear right now, according to that law, how many would stand? An impartial application of justice would convict anyone of murder who provoked his brother or sister to curse him or her in their heart. Or who held a bitter root of anger against their brother or sister. A measured penalty for murder is eternal death. How many would stand? In fact, to really understand this, I think we need to consider this parable we come to often. It's the parable of Matthew 18, verses 21 through 35. It's a parable we know well, we've seen it well, we've even looked at it through our study in Leviticus. It's the parable of the unforgiving servant. Remember this parable? A servant's brought before his king and he he owes the king a huge debt and the servant falls on his face and he begs for mercy. He doesn't beg for justice. He begs for mercy. The king extends mercy to his servant. He forgives the debt. I know the the parable goes on, but what I want us to see is, yes, this is a beautiful demonstration of mercy. But it's a horrible demonstration of justice. Do you see that? It's not justice. That is set aside in order to extend mercy. The forgiveness that the king offers the servant is not free. We often miss that point. It's not that he just forgives some abstract number. No, he forgives a real debt, taking on the loss himself in order to extend mercy. The loss remains. 
Someone has to take on the loss. Either the man pays the debt or the king forgives it, extends mercy, and receives the loss himself. 10,000 talents is an amount the man could never pay. So I just want to ask you this question. What do you want? Do you want justice or do you want mercy? Because you can't have both. Do you want justice or mercy? Justice delivers an impartial, measured, and merciless penalty against the guilty. Mercy sets aside the penalty. Which do you want? A man kills his wife. The judge cannot accomplish justice and extend mercy at the same time. It is simply not possible. No government can be both merciful and just in the same situation at the same time. Think about it. Who do you want to elect as judge? Someone who is abundantly merciful or someone who is just? I mean, actually just. I think if we're, if we're really honest, hear me. If we're really honest, we will confess that the answer to that question really depends on who we're talking about. We want justice for our enemies. We long for justice for our enemies. Those who wrong us, we want them to pay. We want them to make restitution and receive their sentences. And listen to me. If you've never felt this tension between justice and mercy, friends, you've never understood the gospel. You cannot possibly understand the gospel and not understand this tension between justice and mercy. Let me just read for you Romans 3. Romans 3, starting in verse 21. Let's see what Paul says about this. Verse 21, he says, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, friends, there is only one place where justice and mercy come together. And that is the cross of Jesus Christ. There is only one place where justice is fully delivered and mercy is fully extended. And it's the cross. Justice and mercy meet their ultimate expressions in the cross. They do. Justice and mercy meet their ultimate expressions in the cross. The full amount of every sin was paid for each and every person who would ever repent of their sin and trust in Jesus Christ alone. But there has also never been a greater display of mercy than on the cross. On the cross, mercy was extended to the whole world. Justice fully satisfied. Mercy fully extended. That is the wonder of the cross and it is the glory of the gospel. Now listen, in order for us to really apply this to our own lives, we, we've got to actually think in terms of this. We've got to think of terms of the already and the not yet. The already and the not yet. And what I mean by that is, yes, we long for justice in this world, and we should. 
Why? Because we're made in the image of God. And you know who God is? He's just. We should strive for justice in our homes, in our community, in this nation, and in the world. But we have got to understand this within the big picture. And that requires us to understand two things. It requires us to understand that justice has been delivered in Christ. And justice will be delivered when he returns. Justice has been delivered in Christ. And it will be delivered when he returns. Justice has been delivered in the cross of Christ. Sins paid for. Made righteous. Justice wrought completely for all of those whom he purchased. That has to inform our relationship with other people on a personal level. This means something for us. Listen to this. This this means as much as we say we long to see someone who has wronged us get exactly what they deserve, we cannot ask for justice that has already been delivered. Do you understand that? For those who trust in Christ, who repent of their sins, justice has been delivered. Now, now some of you probably are immediately saying, yeah, but, but what about those who don't belong to Christ? What about those for whom justice has not been delivered? I would say, not yet. But, but there's a day coming when, when Christ returns and every person who has rejected his mercy will stand before him, give an account, and justice will be served. That means that you don't need to serve it now. You understand that? See, if we understand this, you know what we'll be? We will be a people of mercy. (laughs) If you really understand that, it frees you to be a person who is extravagant in their expression of mercy in their relationships. You don't have to concern yourself with justice. Again, I'm talking about on personal relationships, not in our community, nation, or in the world, certainly. But I'm talking about in your personal relationships. You do not have to concern yourself with making sure that people around you get justice. Mercy, we can give. We can be a people of mercy. We are free To love, to forgive, to extend mercy in every relationship. And so, let me conclude with this. We started with this quote. Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. And then we ask the question, is that true? I would say, no. I would instead say, the cross is what love looks like in public. The cross... It's what love looks like in public. Justice satisfied. Mercy extended. Love demonstrated. That is what love looks like in public. Would you stand as we close with a word of prayer this morning? Gracious Father, we confess that we as people often long for a partial justice. We long for justice to fall on those who have wronged us while we know that we so desperately need your mercy. Father, would you forgive us? Would you convict us where we often demand justice to be served? And and often when we demand it to be served to others, 
while we enjoy the rich fruit of mercy which has been given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, would you transform us into a people who are extravagant in our mercy because we're fully confident that our God is just and justice has and will be served. And we can celebrate that, Lord, by extending the same mercy we've received in your Son, Jesus Christ, in every relationship you have given us. Father, would you be honored and glorified by the way that we extend mercy to all people. We pray this and ask this in Jesus' holy name, by your Spirit's help. Amen. As we come to the time of the invitation this morning, um, <clears throat> I think it's, it's, it's pretty clear. First, let me address the, the non-Christians. Maybe uh, you're in here this morning and, and you're struggling a little bit with how to, to reconcile justice and mercy meeting together at the cross. Well, let me make sure that you know uh, what we mean when we say that. That is, uh, we believe that God created this world and everything in it. And therefore, as its creator, he is its ruler. He is over all. Um, But we also believe that he created man to be chief over all of creation. And in that creation, man sinned. They rejected God's good and right design. And as the creator of the universe, that rejection earned them a punishment. It earned them a need for justice. Now, God would have been very just indeed if at that moment he had destroyed all of creation. In fact, we see a little bit in the picture of Noah and the ark, don't we? All mankind's heart were intent on evil at all times, and the Lord had regret that he made it. But even in the ark, there is an opportunity for mercy. This is pictured all throughout the Old Testament. Man deserving of God's justice, needing to receive God's justice, and yet calling out for mercy and God showing them mercy. We need to recognize this, that we, friends, have earned in our sin justice. If you're standing here this morning, you've never heard this, hold yourself up against the law of God. You ever looked at another woman with lust in your heart? You ever taken the name of the Lord your vein? You ever look at Leviticus chapter 24 and say, I've done that? Well, you, like that very man, have earned and deserved justice. But the good news of the gospel is that justice was met and mercy was extended. How would that happen? Well, there was one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Son of Man, fully God, fully man, who came and lived a perfect life. Therefore, he was the only one who did not deserve the justice of God, and yet... In his goodness and his love and his mercy, he willingly went to take upon himself justice. To take upon himself the penalty that you and I deserved in our sin, he took it so that justice could be satisfied. And not only that, but he extends to us mercy. Mercy, in that exchange for our sin, he gives us his righteousness, his perfection. He gives us that which we so desperately need to be seen in the eyes of our Creator as those who are no longer deserving or gaining His justice. Friends, that mercy is extended to you this morning. You, if you would repent of your sins, turn away from your sin, declare Jesus to be your King, believe everything that I just said, that He was raised from the dead for that justification of that very sacrifice, put your hope and trust and faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you can be a recipient of God's mercy. That hasn't happened for you. I encourage you. Make today that day. I'll be down front. I'll be happy to share with you more about this gospel. To witness to you. To encourage you. Answer any questions you might have. If you're just wrestling or struggling with where you are with the Lord, then come down front. Be happy to talk with you about this. But brothers and sisters, for us who belong to Christ, if you're like me, there's been some 
some need for you to get on the phone this week and extend mercy to those who you have hoped for justice, who you've not extended mercy to in any way, shape, or form. And let me just tell you, it's not fun. The flesh wars against that. But why do we do it? Because no matter how much someone has hurt you, it simply does not compare to your sin against the holy God. And He has shown you mercy. Therefore, the greatest act you can do as a follower of this merciful God is extend mercy to someone who simply doesn't deserve it. That, that is who you are. You are a recipient of undeserved mercy. Therefore, be a people that hands out freely undeserved mercy. Ask God for his help. Ask your brother and sister in Christ for their help. His friends, it's not easy. But when we dwell on the gospel and we think about what we've been given, we have to strive to give the same. However the Lord's working in your life, I certainly pray that he would continue to do that. He would drive you to his grace and mercy in all things. I'm going to ask my brother Danny McMillan if he would close us in a word of prayer, and then I'll read our benediction and we'll be dismissed. Brother Danny?